Drake today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. As always, thanks for joining. You've heard it many times before. We just need to get to 70% of eligible people to get vaccinated and we can get back to normal. Or maybe it's a different number, maybe 80%. Maybe it's less. And there's been a lot of arguing over what exactly that number is and what all that means. And in all those discussions, you've heard or used the term herd immunity, which is how we describe whatever that number is. My next guest says we often are using that term to describe a magic light switch that makes the pandemic stop and allows us to return to normal life. But University of Wisconsin-Madison social epidemiologist Malia Jones says it is not a light switch, and we're really thinking and talking about herd immunity all wrong. She joins me now to talk about why and what we should be focusing on instead. Malia Jones, welcome to Detroit Today. Thanks for having me. So let's start with just how you think people are thinking about herd immunity in the wrong terms. Yeah, herd immunity it has certainly become uh, a buzzword in the pandemic. This is actually what I studied before the pandemic. And it's really funny to me to be um, all of a sudden have everyone talking about it. I used to have to try to explain uh, what I meant when I said what I studied. Most people are thinking about herd immunity like it's the finish line. And once we get there, you know, once we get to 70 or 80 or whatever percent it is, um, vaccinated, then we'll just be done and the pandemic will be over. But that's um, herd immunity is actually uh, not the finish line of a pandemic. It's it's the thing that we get to after the pandemic is over. And it's what keeps another pandemic from from kicking off. So it's actually something you can't you can't reach the herd immunity threshold and then expect um, that to be the magic moment when it's all over. It's actually, you know, vaccines are the way to end the pandemic, but herd immunity is something that we'll get to much later. Mm. And hopefully will be the thing that keeps another epidemic from starting. So, so as I was saying in the open, there is this obsession with number, right? 70%, yeah. 65%, 80%. Everybody has a number in their heads, I think, at this point that they believe is the is that magic is that magic number? Can, can you walk us through what those numbers actually mean and, and whether we should put too much stock in, in one versus another? Yeah. So, um, you know, not only is it not a finish line, it's also um, herd immunity threshold, whatever that number is that would be protective of, you know, keeping another outbreak from ever happening is very hard to figure out in advance. It's really something we've only ever been able to understand after the fact. So, you know, we reached the herd immunity threshold for measles, um, for example, and measles essentially went away in the United States. Um, and, and it's uh, been eliminated for 20 years. And only in the recent years has it started to return. So we've had a bunch of measles outbreaks recently. Mm -hmm. And that tells us, you know, that when we look at, okay, well, what, at what point of vaccination did that start to happen? Did outbreaks start to happen again? That tells us what the herd immunity threshold truly is for, for measles. Um, it's not something that's easy to forecast. 
for any disease until we've actually reached it and then started to lose it. Um, but I'll tell you in somewhat more practical terms, it's also really sensitive. It's, it's not a fixed number. Uh, it's very sensitive to little changes that can happen. And your previous guest was talking about the variants. That's a great example of something that could actually move the herd immunity threshold. Uh, and so whatever it is now, if there's a variant that's a little more contagious, it, it could get higher. Um, in addition, things like wearing masks will change the whatever the current herd immunity threshold might be. And so as we take off our masks, the herd immunity threshold will also move. So focusing on one exact number is really not very practical. Um, what we need to do is get enough people vaccinated that transmission chains stop. And um, that is most people. Yeah. So, so you mentioned measles and you mentioned that uh, in, in your article as well. Um, that's a really different kind of disease. It is, from yeah. COVID-19. And, and I, I, I want to have you spend just a little time talking about our experience uh, as, as humanity uh, trying to reach herd immunity with something like COVID-19, which is more of a, you know, a, a flu-based, I guess, uh, kind, of, kind of disease. Have we, have we ever been able to do that? Well, when you say it's flu-based, um, I think what you might mean is that it's transmitted by respiratory uh, droplets. Right. Yes. I mean, something that's, that is, uh, you know, uh, extremely contagious because of uh, human inter interaction. Um, yeah. Yeah. So um, measles is much more contagious than COVID-19. The, the good mm. news here when we're talking about how many people need to get vaccinated is that it's probably a lot less than for measles. Um, huh. Measles is arguably the most contagious disease on earth. Hmm. And we have to have something like 97% of all people vaccinated to, to maintain herd immunity for measles. Um, and one of the things that makes it so very contagious is it is truly and very much airborne. So people um, can exhale little measles particles and they just literally float around in the air for hours and afterwards. People can get it. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So it's really contagious. COVID-19 uh, as, as diseases go is, is actually not on the list of most contagious. It certainly is transmitted from person to person, but um, that threshold, that benchmark we're going for is lower. Uh, and in addition, unlike flu, it, it doesn't really mutate super rapidly in a way that makes the vaccine ineffective, at least so far. Huh. And so I still have hope that we're going to be able to ultimately reach herd immunity through vaccination. And you asked about experience doing this for other diseases. There are lots of diseases that we have reached herd immunity for, and many of them are transmitted in exactly the same way as COVID-19. Um, pertussis is a good example of one that um, here in the United States, we, we, do see, uh, we do still see some pertussis outbreaks for a variety of reasons, but yeah. um, so, so, they're nothing like they used to be before the vaccine was introduced. So it seems like you're saying we should be pretty optimistic about, uh, you know, in, in relative terms, uh, the ability to, to reach some sort of herd immunity with, with COVID-19 because... 
you know, as you point out, it's not as contagious as some other things that we have gotten there with, and we we need fewer people to to, to be able to do it. Yeah, I think it's not off the table. Um, and certainly we've already started to see cases decline really quickly here in the United States and in other places where vaccination rates have been relatively high. Um, as I said, you know, those transmission chains are going to be sensitive to the other stuff we're doing. So as soon as we all decide we're going to set our masks on fire and, and never look back, um, I worry that those transmission chains are going to pick back up again. But yeah, I think it's possible. Um, the big question mark is the variance. You know, there could be a variant that essentially undoes all of our, our hard work at getting people vaccinated so far. And that, that would be a, a major setback. Yeah. But so far, the, the vaccines we have cover the variants that exist. And uh, I think we are making progress. I'm talking with Malia Jones. Uh, she's a social epidemiologist with the Applied Population Laboratory at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. She recently wrote a piece for Slate titled, Most People Are Thinking of Herd Immunity All Wrong. We're talking about what misconceptions we have about uh, herd immunity, a, a term that I think all of us are thinking more about than we have in recent memory and certainly talking about quite a bit uh, as the vaccines roll out for uh, COVID-19. Uh, if you want to join the conversation, give us a call and let us know how hopeful or optimistic you are that COVID-19 will stop dominating our lives at some point uh, because enough people will take the vaccination and we'll reach some some form of herd immunity. And give us a sense of how you think we'll get there given uh, the reluctance that a lot of people are showing uh, to go and get their vaccines. I mean, uh, in the previous segment, we heard specifically from a caller here in Southeast Michigan who said he's just not going to go take the shot. He he has no intention of doing it. He does not trust the science. And he pretty much told me there wasn't anything that could happen that would change his mind. I speak each day, it feels like, to more and more people who fall into that category of uh, skepticism or or just outright uh, uh, obstinance ab- about the idea uh, of these vaccines and whether they're, whether they're safe. Uh, give us a call and let us know if uh, you think we can get to herd immunity given all of those obstacles. Um, also, uh, give us a call and let us know if you have questions about herd immunity, what it means and how we get there. Uh, my guest is someone who's saying that uh, a lot of us have the wrong idea in our heads about what herd immunity is and uh, how we might achieve it. As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook or Twitter, put comments there, and uh, we'll work you into the conversation. Let's go to Tony in Westland. Tony, what's on your mind? Hey, Stephen. Thanks for having me on your show today. Sure. Um, I just wanted to kind of bring up the point, and that is, what about all these people who have already had COVID-19, and they've developed some sort of natural immunity to the virus? Hmm. Why aren't they being considered to be immune at some point? I see a lot of uh, things out there about you have to be vaccinated, you know, to take your mask off, but up until not too long ago, there was a study out from the University of uh, California, I believe, that said that uh, vaccine immunity is better 
But up until that point, even Anthony Fauci came out on the Jimmy Kimmel show and said that if you've had the back, if you've had the coronavirus, you have some natural immunity to it. Right. Why aren't these people being yeah. considered immune? Tony, that's a wonderful question, and I think it, it is one of the points of confusion, at least uh, for, for, that I hear from people, about the distinction between someone who is vaccinated and somebody who has had. COVID-19 and whether we ought to be thinking of them the same or different when we're thinking about uh, this this question of, of herd immunity. Malia, mm-hmm. I wonder if you can help help explain that for us. Yeah, I definitely can. So the truth is that people who've had COVID-19 and recovered do have some immunity. Uh, you know, the, the vaccines um, are intended to reproduce the exact same process that your body goes through to remember a virus and defend yourself against it the next time it sees it. And so, yeah, if you've had COVID-19 and recovered, you have some natural immunity. Here's why those people are not counted, you know, quote unquote counted when we're trying to figure out how many people do do we need to get vaccinated to Mm -hmm. reach herd immunity. First, the, as you mentioned, the immunity from a vaccine is better. It's um, more, it's probably more durable, so it probably lasts longer, although we don't know exactly how long at this point. Uh, it's also more, um, it's better against variants because it's less specific to the exact combination of, you know, the exact genetic material of the particular strain that you were infected with. Um, the vaccines are designed to be a little more generic in terms of the production they produce. Uh, and in addition, it it's um, it's less variable. So some people recover from COVID-19 and they have no antibodies three months later. And some people recover and they still have uh, great antibodies after a year. And it's very hard to, to tell which one, which class you're in. So we don't really know how good the immunity is of all the people who got COVID-19. It's not nothing, but we just don't know if we can count those folks when we're thinking about, okay, well, how many people are covered? We know who's been vaccinated. And Mm. so it's just a lot easier to add it up. Um, The other thing is that there are a lot of people out there who think they had COVID-19, especially really early on in the pandemic, uh, and they had the flu. And so we worry a little bit that there's some confusion about, um, about, you know, who who believes they had COVID-19 and uh, and whether they really are immune or not. Hmm. So, so those are the reasons. Yeah. And, you know, I'll also say you were talking about the vaccine hesitancy issue. That's uh-huh. the other part of what I study. Um, and I think, although there are a lot of people out there who are like, no, I'm never going to get this. Uh, it's just not my, for me. There are also a lot of people who, who are more in the not yet uh, wait and see camp. And I am... I mean, I am I have studied vaccines, and these are are uh, they really knocked it out of the park on these vaccines. Mm. They are terrific vaccines, and so I'm hopeful that some of those those people who are just questioning or are not yet will come around as more information emerges and more people they know actually get the shot. You know, it's really hard when you're talking with somebody, and this was that was the specific question I asked uh, the, the the caller earlier. Was what would what would convince you? What are you waiting for? 
to to determine whether you would take the shot. And he he, he didn't have anything. And I'm, that's not a criticism. Uh, it's just an observation that, uh, you know, I, I worry that for some people, um, there 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 just is not any amount of information that will that will push them into the into the yes category. And um, and and if we get enough of those, obviously it it, it does threaten. Uh, that threshold that we're trying to yeah. to reach. No, you're absolutely right. And and the other challenge that I see with this is that those people who are a hard no um, are also going to be a no for their kids. And right. we do need to count kids. Herd immunity, this whole idea of, you know, breaking the transmission chains and getting to a point where we can really think about preventing a future outbreak, uh, that includes kids. And so those people who are a hard no and are not going to budge, um, they'll also decline vaccines for their kids. And so they, they kind of do multiply. Um, it's definitely a worry. I mean, you know, I, I, I don't want to sound overly rosy here, um, but I also know that um, I've had a lot of conversations where somebody said, there's no way I'm not doing this. And then after, uh, after answering their genuine questions about the vaccine, they, they changed their mind. So hmm. Um, I think we need to keep having these conversations. Yeah, yeah. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we are going to continue discussing herd immunity with Malia Jones. We'll also continue to hear from you, the listeners, Gary and Hamtramck, Terry in Washington, Katie in Detroit. We'll get to you next. If you want to join them, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. You can also go to Facebook or Twitter and put comments there. We'll try to include you in the program that way. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. WDET delivers trusted news, inclusive conversations, and cultural experiences that empower the community. 1019 WDET, Detroit's NPR station. This is Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm really glad you've joined us. My guest is Malia Jones. She's a social epidemiologist with the Applied Population Lab at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. And she recently wrote a piece in Slate titled, Most People Are Thinking of Herd Immunity All Wrong. And that's what we're talking about is this concept of herd immunity, the things that uh, we are believing perhaps incorrectly about that term, uh, but also why, why we're so focused on that concept uh, in the middle of this pandemic and whether we ought to be thinking more specifically about some other benchmarks. Uh, as always, we want to hear from you. 313-577-1019 is the number. Call and tell us what you think uh, the chances are that we'll reach this herd immunity that we are all talking about. What do you think it will take to get people to help us get there. Um, you can also go to Facebook and Twitter, put comments there, and uh, we'll include you in the program that way. Let's go to Katie in Detroit. Katie, welcome to the show. Hi. Hi. Um, so I was calling in because I'm a breastfeeding mom, and so the reason I haven't gotten the vaccine is because they haven't really done studies on women who are breastfeeding. Hmm. It's not that they haven't found anything that would deter me. 
I just um, worry about the long-term effects on my baby. So the day I'm done breastfeeding, I will be headed in to get my vaccine. But in the meantime, I feel hesitant to um, put my baby at risk of any long-term effects. Mm. So, so Katie, before I have uh, Malia Jones uh, address that, talk to me about what that means in practical terms for your life. Are there are there things that you are less hesitant to? or I guess less enthusiastic uh, to, to, to get back to in the world because you're not vaccinated? Do you feel like uh, this this kind of holds you back uh, a little bit? Um, I mean, I, I'm going to continue doing social distancing. We uh, haven't really been in any crowded indoor places. We don't go to the museums like we used to. Um, but honestly, carting two small children to any museum isn't really fun anyway, so I'm not really missing that a whole lot. Um, but, you know, some family parties would be nice to get back to. Um, but I think we can continue to do what we've been doing for the past year for just a couple more months till I'm done. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Katie, appreciate the call and, uh, and the information. Uh, Malia Jones, uh, address what she's saying. Yeah, so that's true that we we do not include pregnant or breastfeeding people in the in any clinical trial, um, and so uh, they they weren't included in the clinical trials. But uh, lots of people did become pregnant on accident uh, during the trial, and so I can also talk about pregnancy. That's kind of the other um, that's the other one that comes up a lot in the same conversation. For breastfeeding, um, actually the the uh, breastfeeding support organizations, all the national breastfeeding support organizations out there really encourage breastfeeding women to get the vaccine. It turns out that the antibodies that you produce are transferred in breast milk and so you'd be protecting your baby. The only vaccines that are problematic in while you're breastfeeding are ones that contain a, um, a whole virus. Hmm. And uh, the vaccine, um, particularly the mRNA vaccines from Pfizer and Moderna, actually contain no virus whatsoever. They only contain, um, I, I make an analogy with an instruction manual, uh, sort of like if you had an instruction manual to build an Ikea bookshelf, that's, they contain the instruction manual and then your cells build the, the Ikea bookshelf that is the, uh, the important part of the coronavirus um, protein. Yeah. So your immune system can recognize it. So anyway, the not to get too technical there, but there is really no, um, there's no reason to not get the vaccine while you're breastfeeding. And yeah. in fact, I'd say there's been pretty good reason to consider it. Yeah. And the so CDC, I would really encourage you to reach out to your, um, you know, La Leche League or local breastfeeding support group and, and see what they have to say about it. Yeah. And, and the CDC has said the, the, the same things that you have just, uh, yep, CDC recommends this vaccine while you are breastfeeding. Yeah. And, you know, that is not the case for every vaccine. There are vaccines that are not recommended in breastfeeding. I think that's where some of the, co the confusion comes from. And it's because those are, uh, those are vaccines that contain a virus that could actually be transmitted through your breast milk to the baby. But yeah. this one does not. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Katie, again, thanks very much for the call. Let's go to Gary in Hamtramck. Gary, welcome to the show. Hi, Stephen. Uh, I had a question for your uh, for your guest, Dr. Jones, and that that is, what about the countries that supposedly beat COVID nineteen 
10 or 11 months ago, way before there was any vaccines, like New Zealand and South Korea and Singapore, Taiwan, and others, are they, uh, have they reached herd immunity, or are they in some other category? Are they, are they going to be hit by this? Hmm. Yeah. Great question, Great Gary. Question. Yeah, go ahead, Amelia. The, that, the countries that uh, didn't have big population spread like Taiwan and New Zealand achieved that by um, what I think in the United States we would really consider draconian measure restrictions on people's movement mm-hmm. um, and travel, foreign travel. And so what they did essentially was um, was guarantee that there were no cases introduced into their communities. And that doesn't mean everybody in, in, you know, that doesn't mean everybody's immune. In fact, uh, I'd say that they are among the furthest from herd immunity because most of their population has not had the virus and has not been vaccinated, um, at least in New Zealand. Taiwan's, Taiwan's vaccine status is a little bit better, but they're nowhere near herd immunity. They just manage to prevent um, transmission chains from getting started in the first place in those places. And so they really are still at risk of an outbreak. And uh, if they were to, if New Zealand were to reopen their borders, for example, they would definitely have, a, you know, somebody would come in with COVID-19 and it would it would spread through their community, just like we've seen it spread through so many other countries around the world. Yeah, yeah. Uh, great, uh, great question, Gary. Thanks very much for the call. Let's go to Jim in Detroit. Jim, what's on your mind? You there, Jim? Yes. Yeah, go ahead. Um, you know, uh, when they first started out, they didn't give us proper masks and they didn't propagand us about using masks. In World War II, we changed over a Chrysler line to produce tanks in one month. We were producing tanks. Here, we couldn't get our masks. And we didn't have masks that gave us 100% protection. You're standing in line on a grocery line, and uh, you got a mask that gives you 60% protection, and the the clerk has COVID. You're not protected. You can get COVID. Hmm. We can simply have proper masks that give you 100% protection. The kind of masks that you use for, like, uh, you spring toxic chemicals. But they didn't make those available. So they weren't available for a long time. They're still hard to get. So Jim, <laughs> Jim, are you taking the vaccine? I mean, you sound very skeptical of. And uh, that's another thing. This government has been bald-faced lying to us almost every day for twenty years, and yet people are completely willing to trust them. Mm. I don't trust them. Yeah, uh, Jim, I, I appreciate the call, and again, the candor. Um, you know, Malia, that that. That lack of trust, again, I just I, I hear it over and over, and it worries me because totally. I, I just I, I don't know how you I don't know how you convince people who who you know in Jim's case sounds quite you know sincerely worried um, yeah. that they shouldn't be. Yeah, well, and I think there are a lot of. I mean, I I would agree that there there have been a, a lot of missteps. Um, we we all should have had access to better masks earlier on and a lot of other things should have gone differently. Um, And we can lay that directly at the feet of our government. And so, you know, some of that mistrust I think is not misplaced. You know, I, I I really feel that. Um, 
I will say that um, the vaccines are not developed by the government. They're developed by pharmaceutical companies, mm-hmm. which have their own trust issues. But uh, they're reviewed by the, the FDA, and uh, they're actually reviewed by a panel of independent scientists and clinicians that right. don't work for the FDA. And they, the people on that panel are among the smartest people working in this country. And I really do trust what they, what they determine. And uh, those meetings are open to the public. You can listen to them and hear what the deliberations are and what the really genuine questions are. I mean, they, they don't pull punches. They ask questions like, you know, somebody in the trial had uh, what are, some health issue and why was that? Right. What do we know? What can we know? And so I, tr- I do trust that panel that makes that decision. Yeah. Okay, Malia Jones, uh, it was really great to have you here for this conversation. Thanks so much for joining Thanks us. Thanks for having me on. Yeah. That's going to do it for us today. Uh, I'll be back tomorrow with Congresswoman Alyssa Slotkin, who's going to talk about what the Colonial Pipeline hack tells us about the bigger threat of cyber attacks. This is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.